Assuming I'd like to talk about the journey of renunciation. In the story of the Buddha, it's said that when the Buddha was born as the Prince Siddhartha, his father called to the palace uh, a kind of an old man, a kind of soothsayer, who would foretell what the future of the young prince would be. And this wise man said to Siddhartha's father, well, this child will grow either to be a great king or a great teacher. And Siddhartha's father, of course, being the king, uh, preferred that his son was also going to be the king. And so he designed a life for the young prince, which was different than the life of most anyone else. It said that in the palace where Siddhartha was growing up as a prince, that nothing was ever allowed that would ever be seen as being ugly or undesirable or unpleasant. In the story, it said that even the leaves on the bushes weren't allowed to die, but were removed before they could die so that Siddhartha would never see in his whole life anything that ever disturbed him, that ever challenged him. And then instead he was surrounded with a world of pleasure, a world that delighted him, where every single desire and whim was immediately fulfilled and granted, so that he never knew a moment of wanting something else. And as Siddhartha, of course, growing up in this, became a young man, decided one day um, that he would actually like to see what else went on in the world outside of the palace, which worried his father greatly because his father felt less control outside of this world, outside of the palace. But even so, before the prince was going on this visit outside of the palace to the city, the king ordered that all of the streets would be cleaned of anything that was unpleasant or disturbing or ugly. And so the day came when Siddhartha ventured out on this journey out of the palace. And he encountered four experiences or four events which are said to have changed the entire journey of his life. These four events that Siddhartha encountered in the Buddhist tradition are called the Four Heavenly Messengers. As the Prince Siddhartha was driving through the streets of the city, first he happened to see someone in the crowd who was very old, an old woman who was bent over, leaning on a cane, who was very frail, and, and, and weak and fragile. And when Siddhartha saw this old woman, he turned to his charioteer and he said, What is this? And his charioteer said to him, This is old age. This is aging. And Siddhartha said to his charioteer, This has happened to everybody. And the charioteer said to him, Yes, to everyone who lives, there is also aging. They continued their journey, and Siddhartha then looked out, and he saw again in the crowd someone who was ill, who was diseased, 
who was lying on a stretcher surrounded by family who looked terrible. And Siddhartha in shock turned to his charioteer and said, what is this? And the charioteer said to him, this is sickness. And Siddhartha again in puzzlement asked, does this happen to everybody? And the charioteer said, yes, this too. To everyone who lives, there is sickness. As they went further, yet on their journey to the city, Siddhartha in the crowd spotted or saw a corpse, a dead body, surrounded by grieving relatives who were crying and wailing, surrounding this bier of someone who had died. And Siddhartha turned to his charioteer and said, what is this? And the charioteer said, this is death. And again, Siddhartha asked, does this happen to everyone? And the charioteer answered, yes, this too. To everyone who is born, there is dying. As they continued on their journey, the last of the messengers that Siddhartha faced was in looking out in the crowd, saw the figure, the person of a monk with shaved head, who was wandering through the crowd composed and serene. And Siddhartha asked his charioteer, and what is this? And the charioteer answered, this is a renunciate, someone who has dedicated their life to understanding what is true, to understanding what it means to be free. Now in the story of the Buddha, it said that through the exposure to these four heavenly messengers, that there awakened in Siddhartha a sense of disquiet and a sense of questioning. That there awakened in Siddhartha the energy to explore the meaning and the sense of his own life. In the story it said that these four heavenly messengers were for Siddhartha his particular call to awakening the events or the messengers that inspired him to walk on a path or to begin a journey which eventually led to his own liberation. Soon after this, this journey in the city, Siddhartha left home and entered what in the Buddhist tradition is called a life of homelessness or entered the path of renunciation. It was a major transition obviously in his life, to leave behind the comfort and the ease and the security and the familiarity of the world of a prince and to enter into a life which had no guarantees. Now this story of Siddhartha, this story within the Buddhist story, is a story that describes the archetypal journey of the seeker. It's a journey which is traveled in countless times by countless different people. It is a journey that we make in our own lives. When we come on a retreat, when we enter a path in our own lives where we feel inspired to question, to learn, where we are opening and seeking for a deeper way of understanding, we too are answering our own particular call to awakening. Now the heavenly messengers 
or the calls to awakening which so startled the Prince Siddhartha are also events that happened not only in the life of the Buddha. These are also events and messengers that each one of us meets in our own life. In our journey, in our particular stories and lives, we too encounter events and experiences which startle us into wakefulness. So we meet death. Sometimes our lives can be proceeding in a seemingly predictable fashion where there are few surprises. Someone close to us dies. It is an event we will all meet. It is an event that startles us to question, to look at how much we take for granted our own mortality, to look at the sense of meaning with which we actually live our own lives. How much do we appreciate the transience of our own lives? Stephen Levine is a teacher who teaches many workshops and retreats on death and dying. Once last year he was teaching a retreat. Many people had come to this retreat to learn about death and dying. The first question he asked on the opening night of the retreat, he said, Who here is going to die? And it took a really long time before anybody raised their hands. How often we have a sense, no, this is something that happens at some other time, at some other place, to some other people. Separation and failure, tragedy and loss, rejection and disappointment. These are all common human experiences. They happen to us. They are experiences that have the potential to awaken us in profound ways. In these moments when we encounter death, change, separation, or loss, they are all events that reveal how very fragile our sense of control is, how very little control we have over the events in our lives, even over our own minds and bodies. How much control have you been able to exert today? When you have asked your mind to be quiet, how much obedience have you met? When you have said to yourself, let me be peaceful, how much response has come to you? When you have said to your body, relax, be calm, be alert, how much control have you actually had? These moments that we meet in our lives are calls to awakening. They are messengers that can truly, profoundly startle us into a deep level of questioning. And our challenge in our lives is not to meet, we don't have any problem meeting the messengers that have the potential to awaken us. The challenge in our lives is actually learning how to listen well, rather than to turn away from the potential that is offered to us in every moment of our lives. 
when we do meet experiences of change, of hurt, of pain, of separation, in those moments, there are many different maps that can unfold for us and many different responses we can experience. One response that we may experience when life doesn't obey our desires, our wishes, our demands, one response we can experience is to blame. And perhaps you've even experienced that today. It must be somebody's fault. It must be the world's fault. It must be the fault of the stars. It must be someone's fault, perhaps even my fault, that I am not happy, that I am denied peace, that I am denied security. Another response that is possible for us to experience is the response of despair, a sense of powerlessness, of mistrusting, our own capacity to bring about transformation. Oh, it's not possible. I'm not good enough. I'm not spiritual enough. I haven't got the right karma. Um, you know, I haven't got the right history. I'm not the right kind of person to be happy in my life, to be able to meditate well, to live a spiritual life. Another path is that is possible for us to follow is the path of anger, of rejection, of denial, of judgment. And another pathway that it is possible for us to follow is to actually choose to answer the messengers in our own lives, to choose to respond with wisdom to our own calls to awakening, to look at ourselves, to look at our lives in new ways, and to reach for the greatness of heart and spirit that empowers us to live in a world of challenge and change in a free way. For many people, it is their capacity and their willingness to listen to their own cause to awakening that actually brings them to meditation, that brings them to a retreat. Very few people end up at Gaia House just out of curiosity or because they've got nothing better to do with their time. For most people who come here, come on retreat or travel a spiritual path, it is because they have learned to listen inwardly and intuitively understand. The call to seek for the same wisdom, the same freedom, the same compassion that embarked Siddhartha on his journey of questioning. Within us, there does lie a powerful voice of intuition, a voice of intuition that guides us, that tells us that we are not just a powerless victim or recipient of life challenges and changes. There is a voice of intuition within us that tells us that as human beings, we are not simply fated 
to blindly suffer conflict or a life of limitation. There is the intuition that tells us or inspires us with a sense of possibility that it is possible for us as human beings to be aware, to be awake, to be free and to embody wisdom and compassion in every area of our life. Now when we come on a retreat, we too actually make a fairly radical step in our life. We go from a life and a world of familiarity and comfort to a life of unfamiliarity. In many ways, we make that same transition of leaving home and going into a life of homelessness. When we come here, we do leave behind us the armor of our habits, our props, our roles, our identities, and we enter into unknown territory. When we come on a retreat, we also leave behind us many of our strategies for dealing with life, for attempting to, attempting to control our world. And we enter into a space of great openness, and an openness which for many people is experienced as a great vulnerability. When we come on a retreat with a willingness to let go and a willingness to learn, we too begin a journey of renunciation. We go from the familiar to the unfamiliar. In fact, in every sitting, every walking, every moment of a retreat, we are actually making that journey from the known to the unknown. And we see when we are here alone, on a retreat, even when we are in this large community, we feel that sense of aloneness and vulnerability. And the silence and the aloneness is actually revealing to us. We see that there are few places to hide and few strategies to rely upon. No matter what we were in our life, you know, you may have a, a doctorate in engineering, you may be a university lecturer, you know, you may be a management consultant. Well, you don't, you come here, and unless you're wearing a name tag, you know, all of that actually means very, very little. You may have done a hundred retreats before in your life and have a bulging portfolio of meditation, credentials and experiences. Nobody knows. Here you begin in the same place as everyone else because all of our credentials and all of our portfolio is essentially the accumulation of the past. We come into this silence and this solitude and it is difficult to rely upon a particular identity or role to reassure ourselves as being someone. There is little certainty. We are asked here to be present, to see what unfolds 
in silence. What unfolds in aloneness, we are asked to be open to that silence and aloneness, to look not for certainty, but to look for understanding, to look not for reassurance, but to look for depth. We are asked to look not to the strategies of the past, but to really look at what is possible for us in the present. We are asked to rely not upon our thoughts, through which we think we know ourselves or know our world, but to see with freshness, to see with a quality of innocence, This practice we do here is a practice of renunciation, a practice of letting go in every moment. It is learning how to rest in the calmness of not knowing. The spirit of renunciation is not about abandoning the world, about shaving our heads or donning robes. The spirit of renunciation really does lie in the grace with which we are willing to embrace the unknown. This is not an easy place for us to rest, not knowing. You know, in America, they did a survey of average Americans. And in this survey of average Americans, they've probably done one here too, they, they discovered that something like 70% of average Americans had had a mystical experience in their lives, and 95% of those never wanted to have another one. It is often so difficult for us to be in a place of unfamiliarity, of being without guarantees and uncertainty. And here on a retreat, probably today, you have seen the varieties of of ways in which our minds can struggle and strive to make this world familiar and to make this world known. Because what we know, we feel safe in. We feel we can control. We feel we have an identity. And what we don't know doesn't actually promise us any of this. And in the absence of knowing, how many times we find ourselves becoming agitated and afraid, becoming needy, becoming restless, because somehow for us, the unknown is a kind of signal of loss and fear. In this journey we make in meditation, we are really encouraged to trust that it is not knowing, that it is the unknown that holds mystery and understanding and profound level of connectedness. And we are asked to have the courage and the trust and the confidence just to stay present in that, even when the mind is wildly struggling for security, for certainty, for reassurance. Now for many people they do find that the moment they enter meditation and a meditation retreat, they do encounter in a variety of different ways 
the fear of the unknown and the attachment to knowing. And it is here where we're asked to cultivate the art of letting go. Here we're asked to cultivate the patience and the trust to let go. You know, and sometimes in, in, this, in this path, in the spiritual tradition, we speak about letting go so much. And for many people, it's just heard as this kind of generalized thing, you know, that it's a good idea to let go. Um, I think it's really important to understand what an intensely personal journey renunciation is. We are the only ones who actually know what it is we're holding on to, where it is we grasp, where it is we cling. No one else can ever know that for us. No one else can ever know that the opinions or the identities or the roles that we hide in or the habits we perpetuate or the mechanisms of security that we actually feed into. No one can know that but, but ourselves. And a whole journey of renunciation, can, no one can substitute in that journey for us. And never ever to perceive renunciation as a loss but to perceive it as a gift of freedom. Because we can be sure that everything that we hold on to, everywhere we cling, everywhere we grasp, whether it's an opinion, whether it's a role, whether it's an identity, this is where we find our prison in life. And to find the small ways here that we may find ourselves really grasping for security, you know, it, it, it might be, you know, it's such a small thing as, you know, I, I might get, you know, I just eaten breakfast, but what if I get hungry before lunch, so I'll put a banana in my cup. Well, you know, this is grasping for, you know, to make everything known and controllable and familiar. What if it is a, in a judgment, you know, I am like this, this path in the retreat is like that, to know where we hold, to know where we grasp, to really be honest enough to ask ourselves, Am I free in that moment? Am I really free in that moment? Or am I really choosing to live my life within a prison? There are many ways in which our, our craving for control and familiarity begins to emerge on a retreat. You know, for some people, and you do have to have a sense of humor about this because you know, it, you know, although it's embarrassing at times when we see our kind of particular cravings for familiarity, you can be sure they are shared by others. You know, some people, it's in the meditation room, you know, they've almost got a kind of fence built around their, their cushion, you know, the territory staked out. This is mine, you know, it's my blanket, my cushion, my place. We don't even know necessarily how much we're holding unless we came in and found someone else on it. For some people, you know, the territorial thing emerges in their room. You know, they unpack their suitcases, a portable altar, you know, they've got their own pictures to hang on the walls, or curtains to put at the windows, you know, trying to make this space something that is so familiar to me. For some people, you know, it is in carving out a routine here which looks just like our life in a different setting. You know, for some people, life on a retreat, you can, it's hard to comprehend what a busy life it can be. You know, one time, I was talking to somebody on a retreat, and they said, you know, I got up off a sitting, 
And I was really determined to go and do a walking meditation. But every time, as soon as I got out the door, I would think of all these things that I needed to do. You know, I needed to wash my socks, I needed to have a cup of tea, you know, I needed to read the schedule, and then I needed to go to my room, and then I needed to come and read the schedule again, in case it had changed, you know. Then I needed to go and check if my socks were dry. But there was so much to do, there was no time to do any walking. You know, and I have to use these periods, you know, to get everything done. For another person, you know, it's that the routine is, is different, you know, it's that feeling of, I must have this, you know, I've, I've got to have my nine hours sleep, you know, and I've got to have my coffee after a sitting, you know, and I've got to have my little nap after lunch, and I, if I don't do this, my whole world is going to fall apart. Sometimes that's not a bad thing, you know, to let our world fall apart, to see what happens when we are not relying on our particular routines or habits to guide us through the dangers of a day. Sometimes we are so convinced that we need to do all of these things that we don't really have the space or the time to see the ways in which we are constructing a fence around our world or building for ourselves a house that has no windows that we are always staying within what we know, within what feels safe and familiar to us. Sometimes we see the struggle, our struggle with the unknown through the appearance of the negotiator, especially on retreats. And the negotiator is that kind of voice within ourselves that is working basically on the principle of likes and dislikes. And the negotiator is always making deals you know, kind of predicting the future, ordering the next moment. You know, some people, they go and they look at the schedule at the board, on the board, and you can actually see when you look at the schedule on the board, there's really not much to do here except to be aware. You know, there's not much other things scheduled. So some people actually look at the schedule and they say, oh no, you know, I can't do that, that's all day. Being away all day, you know, if I did that, I might, get, I might get tired, you know, I might get stressed out with so much awareness. And so the deals start, you know, as if there's something pleasant about being unaware. You know, the deals start, and sometimes the deals are about, well, you know, okay, well, I'll do that sitting as long as I, you know, then, then I'll reward myself with having a nap afterwards, you know. Or I'll sit for 10 minutes without moving with that sore knee, but then I'm going to, you know, move every two minutes after that. That's it, you know. And these deals can go on through the day, always trying to play, find a place of, of safety and familiarity. Sometimes I struggle with the unknown we experience more in the form of images. You know, here, as it was mentioned yesterday evening, you know, we have this very unusual situation of silence. Here you are in a very intimate situation with people. I mean, inches away from each other's bodies. You know, sleeping in rooms with people you've never met. You know, sharing bathrooms, and you have no idea who they are. Absolutely none. 
You know, you don't even know if these people are kind of on the run from, you know, from prison or institution. You have no idea and no way of checking it out. And yet, in this silence, how quickly the mind has already got everything organized, you know. We figured out who our allies are and the people that we don't want to sit next to at lunch, you know, and, and the people that we'd like to walk beside and the people who are models for us and the people who, you know, we've already decided, our, you know, shouldn't really be in such a kind of enlightened setting, you know, they, they belong somewhere else. All of it is just a world of thought, a world of thought, a world of images, where the mind is trying to find its place of safety. All our thoughts are telling us are our descriptions about reality. And there can be such an enormous gulf between our stories about reality and what actually is. And yet, unless we are really willing to renounce our stories, we always deny to ourselves that opportunity to see what is true. How many times this happens in our lives that we have an image of someone that is so fixed that may have been based on one incident, one occurrence in our relationship, and we have decided and concluded what kind of person this person is. And nothing, we are determined that nothing will shake our conviction. How many times do we deny to ourselves the possibility of learning and the gift of allowing others or allowing ourselves to change? Because this happens not only about other people. Within our judgments of ourselves, we are imprisoning ourselves too in a world of conclusions. Now through this practice we are doing here, through cultivating attention, our inner world and our outer world begins to be more clear. Meditation is a light that disturbs shadows. Through attentiveness, we come closer. We ex begin to experience a greater sense of intimacy with ourselves, with the world around us. As we come closer, we sometimes even experience more acutely the mind's desire to jump out of the unknown the moment that it is encountered. You know, sometimes you may have been walking today and you experience how completely uninvited the mind has decided to categorize the entire world. You know, that's just a nice tree. That's a nice bush. You know, they ought to move that tree over there. And if they laid that pathway out a little differently, and you know, I wonder when that's going to bloom how much the mind is acting as a guard against mystery, a guard against surprises, superimposing what we know from the past upon the present. You may have noticed it when you sit, how much the mind has got to say about what is happening. Again, completely uninvited. 
you know, oh, this is a good city. You know, this city's not as bad as the last one, you know, and I must be getting better because this city in the United States, I mean, oh, no, I've blown it again, you know, and there goes all the concentration I've gained, you know. And the mind has always got these ideas about what is a good city and what is a bad city. Well, in truth, there is really no such thing as a good city or a bad city, and no one ever really believes this. And we've decided sometimes that a good sitting is a pleasant sitting. Or a good sitting is one that fulfills our expectations. Or our images of what meditation looks like. Or a good sitting is one is when where we're not disturbed. Now sometimes, of course, we get very disturbed, you know, especially when you sit a bit longer and you appreciate how much the mind has to say. It does become a little disturbing. You know, even though these thoughts seem to be on one level offering security and safety, many people find themselves wishing that they could have just a few new thoughts. You know, unusual thoughts. I mean, how many new thoughts have you had today? Thoughts that you haven't thought before? Or how much have we just been recycling all of the past again and again in the present? Now, this sense of disquiet, the sense of being disturbed by all of this chatter and interpretation, this is a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. You should totally welcome this feeling of being disturbed. This whole practice is intended to disturb us. This practice is not about just finding some nice, safe place that makes us feel good about everything. This practice is intended to disturb us. When we feel a sense of disquiet, a sense of dissatisfaction with the chattering and the labeling and the interpreting and the, and the, the sense of I always seeking for a sanctuary, it is wonderful to feel disturbed. You should cultivate this feeling of being disturbed. There is something where, there is a place in this practice for what I would call a positive dissatisfaction. Because then, and only when we are disturbed in our lives, are we actually willing to consider the possibilities of renunciation. Mostly when we are disturbed. That is when we are really willing to consider the possibility that letting go is actually a gift of freedom. As long as we are in our place in our lives of just accepting the boundaries of what we know, accepting the comfort as a goal in our lives, accepting security or complacency as an aim in our lives, renunciation doesn't mean a thing to us. It has no place in that life. So it is a virtue. It is a good thing to feel disturbed. You mean if you're agitated today? Wonderful. You know? You feel a little, you know, dissatisfied with the mind today, a little worried about the silence, a little worried about aloneness. Wonderful. This is the best place to be. The other option is to be just hiding in a sanctuary that I am in feeling in control and uh, that I am feeling comfortable in. 
The journey of renunciation is truly a leap within the consciousness of going from harm into homelessness. It is a leap of faith, of being unwilling to accept as a reality any longer a world that is defined by likes and dislikes, by the past, by images, or by conclusions. The journey of a renunciation is a commitment to exploring the wisdom of uncertainty, the wisdom of not knowing. It's a commitment to exploring the mystery and richness of what is not known to us. Holding and grasping and clinging, these are the ties that bind us to the past. They are also the ties that leads any sense of mystery from the present. When I was in Asia, there was a time when I went to practice in a monastery in Thailand. And I, I sat down in the hall and I kind of assumed that somebody would come along and tell me what to do. And after three days, I was still sitting there waiting for somebody to come and tell me how to meditate. So finally, I, I got out the courage to go and ask the, the teacher in the monastery. I said, you know, wait, you know, don't you have any instructions? You know, what am I supposed to be doing here? And he said to me, no worries. You just sit down and let go. This often, you know, this puzzled me then, and it often, I think, really, seems a puzzle to many people in the present. How do we let go? We don't let go by our thoughts. We don't let go by resolution. We don't let go by willpower. And there are different ways, actually, in which letting go actually happens. One way is through calmness. You do find, you will find, when the consciousness is very calm, when you feel very much at home within yourself, when you feel very much content within the present, that no matter what arises through the mind or through the world, that it doesn't stick. That it doesn't stick. There is a very organic, a very natural letting go. Sometimes letting go happens through insight, through understanding. If you have found yourself today struggling, striving, resisting, you know, feeling knotted up or tied up in knots of, of, of denial or rejection or aversion, well, you have met suffering. When we have met suffering, a very good question to ask of ourselves is, do we really need to suffer? You know, and how much suffering is a very direct consequence of holding and clinging. Sometimes the awareness reveals to us that we have choices in this life and that a lot of suffering may be something that is optional. Insight reveals to us the real willingness to let go. Sometimes the reluctance to let go is because we feel ambivalent. 
even though we may be suffering, we also at least know the suffering that we're in. Sometimes I think there happens to clear resolve. There are many times when we begin to listen inwardly and we see the familiarity of the avenues that our mind travels. You know, perhaps you are a person who endlessly follows the avenue of aversion. Perhaps you are a person who endlessly assumes the role of the judge. You know, perhaps you're you're a person who's endlessly lost in restlessness. Well, if we see this enough, that, you know, our mind is conditioned to follow certain avenues and we know where those avenues lead to, sometimes there can be born within us a very clear intention to no longer follow the pathways that lead to suffering. There's a dimension of letting go, too, which has not to do with particular contents of mind, but is a deep inner commitment to non-dwelling, to not dwelling anywhere. And it can be useful to experiment with what difference this might make in your day here, what difference it might make in a single sitting or a single walking, to come into that sitting with no purpose but to be aware. To come into that sitting with a deep inner commitment not to cling anywhere, not to dwell anywhere. To experiment and to experience what quality of sitting you then experience. To travel a journey of renunciation is not difficult. It is simple, but it asks an enormous amount of us because it asks of us the willingness to embrace uncertainty, the willingness to open to what we don't know, to consider that this opening, the path of renunciation, may also be the path of wisdom. May all beings abide in contentment. May all beings awaken within themselves. May all beings live with openness of heart. If we take a couple of minutes just quietly together and then there'll be a walking period. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.